Hello, welcome to the Quest series. My name is Alan Mulhern. For this episode, we have chosen Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion because it is the clearest statement of the humanist position that there is almost certainly no God and that neither is one needed. The book is not so much visionary as the summation of a vision. It is a sharp argument of ten chapters. The first four argue against the existence of God, while the rest discuss religion and morality, arguing from a humanist perspective that we don't need God, religion or church to construct an ethical life or society, but rather these are an impediment to our progress. Dawkins highlights the shadow in religion and insists that we see it. Firstly, he clarifies the field of battle, presenting two strong antagonistic positions, theism and atheism. Theism is the belief that a god not only created the universe and this world, but is personally invested in it and ourselves. Atheism is the belief that there is no god. With the in-between possibilities of pantheism and deism as watered-down versions of the primary antagonists, pantheism is the belief that god is nature, and deism is the belief that a supreme intelligence or God created the universe, but then, as it were, withdrew from it and left it to evolve or function according to the laws that had been set up at the beginning. Agnosticism he treats in a similar way, as a watered-down version of the primary antagonists, which are, to repeat, theism and atheism. Chapter 1 insists that our feelings of awe and wonder at the universe are not the same as believing in God, a supernatural creator. Einstein, he says, is often quoted as believing in a divine force behind nature. Quote, God does not play dice with the universe. But, says Dawkins, God is just metaphor for Einstein and quotes him, The idea of a personal God is quite alien to me and seems even naive. And, Einstein continues, I have never imputed to nature a purpose or a goal. It is a magnificent structure that we can comprehend only very imperfectly, and that must fill the thinking person with a feeling of humility. This is a genuinely religious feeling that has nothing to do with mysticism. Dawkins says most scientists feel the same, and the public should not be confused. Chapter 2 tells us, I quote from Dawkins, The oldest of the three Abrahamic religions and the clear ancestor of the other two is Judaism. Originally a tribal cult of a single, fiercely unpleasant god, morbidly obsessed with sexual restrictions, with the smell of charred flesh, with his own superiority over rival gods and the exclusiveness of his chosen desert tribe. The Abrahamic god not only created the universe, he is a personal God dwelling within it, or perhaps outside of it, whatever that might mean, possessing unpleasantly human qualities. He is a psychotic delinquent. The God hypothesis is, quote, the belief in a superhuman supernatural intelligence who deliberately designed and created the universe and everything in it, including humans, unquote. Instead, Dawkins passionately believes in the opposite. He says, any creative intelligence of sufficient complexity to design anything comes into existence only as the end product of an extended process of gradual evolution. Creative intelligences being evolved necessarily arrive late in the universe. 
and therefore cannot be responsible for designing it. God is a delusion. Dawkins ridicules the contorted position of the Catholic Church. Is there one God or three? Are you monotheistic or polytheistic, he asks. Oh no, I see you want the best of both worlds. There are three gods in one. What a contortion. But gods can do anything, no? He points out that the founding fathers of America were either atheists or strongly secular, in contrast to the American culture of today, which he believes is infected with fundamentalism. In chapter 3 he launches his central attack on the five theological arguments of Thomas Aquinas for the existence of God. Their once weighty arguments formulated in the 13th century and the bastion of the church's thesis for the existence of God are, he says, vacuous. The first three of the five arguments are simply repetitions of the same fallacy and are quickly dismissed by Dawkins. They centre around a peculiar logic that there must be a prime mover, cause or force, behind those things which are moved or caused. Thus there must be a prime intelligence behind all intelligence. Infinite regress must lead to God. Modern complexity theory dismisses such logic, since complexity can emerge spontaneously, as it were naturally, from any system. The fourth argument claims that since degrees of perfection exist, there must be a pinnacle of perfection, and this is God. This is simply nonsense, says Dawkins. That leaves the main champion, number five, the argument from design, which is the only one still in regular use today and sounds plausible. But thanks to Darwin, Dawkins says, it is no longer true to say that because something looks designed, that it must be so. Evolution, by natural selection, produces excellent design of great complexity and elegance. Other arguments for the existence of God dismissed by Dawkins include the ontological argument from St Anselm in 1078, who defined God as than that which nothing greater can be conceived, and then argued that this being must exist in the mind and therefore must also exist in reality. If it only exists in the mind, a greater being is possible one which exists in the mind and in reality. Therefore, this greatest possibility must exist in reality. And this is God. This, says Dawkins, is pure nonsense. The argument from beauty, that the world, nature, or poetry, is so beautiful that there must be a God who created it. This is not logical and is mere sentiment, believes Dawkins. The argument from personal experience, that someone has personal revelation. But this is probably just hallucination, to which the brain is very prone. The argument from scripture. The fact that events are written in scripture means nothing, says Dawkins. The scriptures have been edited, chosen and selected by church fathers long after the events they describe, such as the death of Christ. Some of the writers, certainly Luke and Mark of the New Testament, had no direct contact with Christ. The scriptures are not reliable reports by independent witnesses. Chapter 4 
gives Dawkins' real argument for why there is almost certainly no God. He quotes Fred Hoyle's opinion that the probability of life originating on Earth is the same as that of a hurricane sweeping through a scrapyard and assembling a Boeing 747. This is the creationist's favourite argument. Such complexity can't be by chance, can it? There must be intelligent design, ID. But, says Dawkins, this argument doesn't understand natural selection and thinks it is a theory of chance, whereas it is the opposite. ID is not the proper alternative to chance. Natural selection is. It is not only a parsimonious, plausible and elegant solution, says Dawkins, it is the only workable alternative to chance that has ever been suggested. Moreover, ID magnifies the problem of improbability, because any entity capable of intelligently designing the universe would have to be even more improbable than the universe itself. Far from terminating the vicious regress, God aggravates it with a vengeance. Natural selection is a cumulative process which breaks up the problem of improbability into small pieces, each of which is slightly improbable, but not prohibitively so. When large numbers of these slightly improbable events are stacked up in a series, the end product of the accumulation appears very improbable indeed, beyond the reach of chance. But the creationist doesn't understand the power of slow accumulation of adaptive change that has been selected for by their success and produces millions or billions of years later amazingly complex life forms. Dawkins now produces a crucial argument, the anthropic principle, which states that no matter how improbable it may be that life or consciousness have emerged, it must be the case that the hurdles to it, the impediments, have been overcome, since we are here talking about it. The origin of life may be highly improbable, but all that is required is a one-off event to make it happen. Then it spreads. There are, let's say, a billion billion planets in the universe. If the chances of the emergence of life are hugely improbable, let's say a billion to one, then there would be a billion planets in the universe where life has emerged. Once these hugely improbable hurdles are crossed, then Darwinian evolution can proceed and create the tremendous range and complexity of life on the planet. This is not explained by the anthropic principle or a one-off event, but as a result of natural selection over billions of years with enormous trial and error experiments. The same applies to consciousness, hugely improbable, but out of the vast number of planets and experiments, only one has to work. How do we know? Well, it must have, because here we are. The anthropic principle. Dawkins can apply this principle to the universe itself. Physicists such as Martin Rees have calculated that if the laws and constants of physics had been even slightly different, the universe would never have developed life. A universe with life is highly improbable, but since we are here, 
our universe must have overcome the obstacles for life to develop. Once again, the anthropic principle. The theological mind has difficulty in grasping, he continues, where the complexity of life comes from. It postulates the existence in living matter of a propensity for increased complexity, for example, Théâtre de Chardin, some inherent weighting of evolutionary change which favours complexity. But, says Dawkins, the evolutionary drive towards complexity comes from biased mutation, from natural selection, which is the only process ultimately capable of generating complexity out of simplicity. The theory of natural selection is genuinely simple. So is the origin from which it starts. That which it explains, however, is complex almost beyond telling. That is the variety of life. Dawkins now considers that there is no argument left for the existence of God. In Chapter 5, The Roots of Religion, Dawkins wishes to examine why religion has been so ubiquitous across human cultures. He cannot see anything valid in this delusion and thinks of it in evolutionary terms. With typical humour, he says, when one person suffers from delusion, it is called insanity. When many people suffer from a delusion, it is called religion. But what is its purpose, since it seems tremendously destructive, crazy and an enormous waste of time? It must be some kind of deviation, he thinks, like a moth that goes into a flame. It must be an accidental byproduct, a misfiring of something useful, such as the trustfulness of a child to its parents, transferred later into God's. We are naturally simple and superstitious, and this is channelled into religion. In chapter 6, he maintains that we do not need religion to be good. Instead, our morality has a Darwinian explanation. For example, that it originates in genetic kinship. The selfish gene promotes altruism to one's kin. Dawkins suggests that there is a universal moral grammar which comes from our evolutionary history. Finally, he suggests that we are not truly being moral if we follow rules because of fear of punishment or because of guilt. Moral behaviour should be chosen freely and come from our reason. In chapter 7, he surveys the history of morality, arguing that there is a moral zeitgeist, spirit of the times that continually evolves in society, generally progressing towards liberalism, that is, his philosophy. As it progresses, this moral consensus influences how religious leaders interpret their holy writings. Thus, morality does not originate from the Bible. Rather, our moral progress informs what parts of the Bible Christians accept, and what they now dismiss. Chapter 8 shows religion is not just good things. Dawkins sees religion as subverting science, fostering fanaticism, encouraging bigotry, and influencing society in many negative ways. He quotes from the Bible many examples, just to give you one of Lot in the Old Testament, who is visited by angels who warn him to leave the city which is going to be destroyed. When a group of men come to his house and demand 
to sodomise the visitors. Lot offers his daughters to be gang-raped rather than break the laws of hospitality. Not exactly a great ethical start to a world-shaping religion, suggests Dawkins. Chapter 9 is outraged about the teaching of religion in schools, which he considers to be an indoctrination process. He equates the religious teaching of children by parents and teachers in faith schools to a form of mental abuse. Chapter 10 concludes with the question whether religion fills a much-needed gap, giving consolation and inspiration to people who need it. According to Dawkins, these needs are much better filled by non-religious means, such as philosophy and science. He suggests that an atheist worldview is life-affirming in a way that religion, with its unsatisfying answers to life's mysteries, could never be. He also seems to have had his own counselling service to comfort and advise those abused by religion. An appendix to the book gives addresses for those needing support in escaping religion. Appraisal. Dawkins, rather than being a complete atheist, simply argues that the existence of God is highly improbable. He is a humanist with the belief that we can live good lives without religious or superstitious beliefs using reason, experience and shared human values. He exposes the duplicity and inadequacy of religious sentiments, the illogicality of a belief in God, and presents an account of the world and universe as arising from evolution and complexity theory, that is, materialist philosophies. He argues coherently against the abuse, cruelty and dangers of a fanatical religious belief, which so endangers civilization and even the planet. He insists that a fair, ethical and rational society can be constructed without recourse to such primitive beliefs and begs us to abandon them. The recent exposures of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church have come post his 2006 publication of The God Delusion, but of course fully support his general argument or attack upon the Church. On the critical side... Firstly, when confronted with the question of origins, Dawkins invokes the anthropic principle. Since life and consciousness are obviously here, the barriers to their emergence must have been overcome. No matter how remote the odds, given that the universe is practically infinite, then life and consciousness will emerge. And these remote odds must have worked out on whatever planet there is consciousness speculating about it. In our case, the Earth, the home of humanity, the Anthropos hence the anthropic principle. But why not say the chances of it happening, within the scientific rules that we know, are as improbable as the existence of a god? And anyway, who invents the idea that there are odds? A million to one? A billion to one? Why not say it is impossible within the scientific paradigms of the materialist worldview? Since, according to evolutionary theory, the beginnings of life on Earth must have been simple, and then through slow mutation complexity emerged, why is it that life has not been created in a laboratory, despite enormous effort? The answer provided by the materialist worldview is that it must have been a one-off, immensely improbable event that cannot be reproduced, like the emergence of RNA molecules. 
which actually sounds suspiciously close to creationism, the one-off event. It has also become clearer that there are certain incredibly fine-tuned constants in our universe that make its existence possible, and therefore the existence of life and consciousness. Rather than say that the universe is programmed or pregnant or potentiated with life from the beginning, that life is meant to be here, like Teilhard de Chardin says, the mighty anthropic principle is invoked once again. For example, that string theory indicates there are infinite numbers of universes, so there must be some, or at least one, that has these constants geared for life. And that must be ours, no matter how remote the odds, since we are here talking about it. Well, it seems that the anthropic principle can accomplish almost anything, while explaining actually very little. How convenient. It uses no current science to explain the origins of life, leaving this to scientific investigations that are to come. The anthropic principle is not a tautology as such, but seems trapped in its own paradigm, whose implication is that life emerged as an accident and consciousness as random mutation. For the moment, I register deep unease with such arguments of the materialist worldview. Be sure that we shall have more on this fascinating topic in later podcasts. Secondly, evolution is a wondrous story with abundant evidence and Dawkins is here on very firm ground with respect to the development of life on Earth. Great leaps in evolution are accounted for in complexity theory by emergent phenomena, that is by higher levels of complexity emerging spontaneously from a system that has a few ground rules. I suspect, however, that it is also, that is, complexity theory and emergence of higher-grade phenomena, a convenient explanation for how extraordinary phenomena such as life and consciousness emerge from any system. From Darwin, Dawkins uses the theory of natural selection as his major tool. While this has great explanatory power, it's not the total story, as we've recently argued in a podcast on James Lovelock, whose Gaia hypothesis argues very coherently that it's the whole planetary surface, atmosphere, gases and existing life, which creates the conditions for the furtherance of life. As it were, there's a collaborative system which produces the conditions for life and its evolution. There's more to this than natural selection. Thirdly, the God delusion correctly exposes the fallacious medieval Christian arguments for the existence of God and indicates that the best of these is ID. Dawkins insists, however, that the alternative to ID is evolution, which produces enormously complex designs and even consciousness itself. Creative intelligence for Dawkins is obviously an evolved phenomena and cannot precede evolution. Of course, the idea of a personal God who designed the universe is full of human projections, I agree, and as Feuerbach, the German philosopher, pointed out in the 1840s. But we have recently discovered that beneath matter there is a quantum reality of extraordinary and contradictory complexity. Well, 
How did life and its evolution emerge and develop from this underlying quantum matrix? How does this square with the idea of a creative, infinite intelligence in the universe, from which ours is finite and derived? Fourthly, Dawkins can see no evolutionary reason for religion. It bestows no survival advantage. He guesses that it is a misfiring of genes, such as those of the moth that flies into the flames, or that it is a culturally self-perpetuating ideas system, that is, memes, M-E-M-E-S, or that it is used for comfort and the like. He cannot see or feel any value to it. For the moment, I suggest three reasons for the existence of institutional religion. Firstly, they arose as civilizations did and formed a system of control over the anarchic and dark forces in human beings as they gathered into large communities. Secondly, they reinforced hierarchy, for example, the divine right of kings, and this served specific class interests. Thirdly, they gave a sense of meaning, purpose, ethics and orientation. In a pre-scientific age, religions were a main pathway to supposed knowledge of the universe, the world, and everything in it. Fifthly, Dawkins is hopeful that societies such as those of the West can carve out an ethical philosophy fit for purpose. I am sure that certain educated and gifted individuals, such as Dawkins himself, can do so. But I feel that this liberal position underestimates what happens in a society for the massive population that has a weakened moral system and relies upon, for example, political correctness. The emerging moral vacuum in the West is horrifying. Personally, I would not re-import the ethical systems of the past. They need updating. And I agree with much of what Dawkins says about the institution of religion. I also feel that there is an underestimation of just how much darkness there can be in the human psyche and in human society and how ineffective liberal values can be in the face of it. Sixthly, there is a big difference between, on the one hand, institutional religion and, on the other, spirituality and mysticism, which are natural forces in human beings. Not in the sense that every human being has inner access to them to the same intensity. They don't. Nevertheless, these are natural forces in the psyche, and one way or another, they require expression. Seventhly, as a Jungian psychotherapist, I am very aware that there is an autonomous self-realisation spiritual force in human beings. This is evident deep in the unconscious, and can be tracked in the dream world. Please tune in to the next podcast for more on this topic. Eighthly, consciousness with its executive functions, control, cognition, orientation in space and time, and causation, and centering on the ego, is very different to the unconscious, which operates symbolically and is linked to the deep emotions and spirit. The material worldview operates from the former, but we have discovered that the unconscious is far greater than consciousness and underpins it, much as quantum mechanics underpins the phenomenal world of matter.
or the implicit order underlies the explicit. Recent research on the different perspectives of the two hemispheres of the brain, by Ian McGilchrist in his book The Master and the Emissary, shows that the right hemisphere of the brain naturally sees things in context, while that of the left tends to break up and analyse. If one moves closer to the unconscious, more to the right hemisphere, or more to the heart, beauty, love, and if, as William Blake urged, the doors of perception could be cleansed, the realm of spirit becomes real, which is because it is a most real part of ourselves. It is built into our psyche. We are that realm of spirit as well as matter. We are a union of both, except that much of the time there is a split in us, or one side denies the other. I could go on, but future podcasts will take this up in detail. As we stretch the frontiers of science, out from relativity theory, quantum mechanics and string theory, the materialist worldview, to my way of thinking, begins to dissolve. And we await a new paradigm, like the coming Messiah. Yes, the God delusions of the past, those projections of humanity's early religions are exposed. Yes, this God, that God, those gods are dead for all but the fanatics, those without knowledge and those who need to preserve identity in a fast-changing world. But out of the mist of our confusion, we glimpse the emergence of an extraordinary, infinite intelligence that permeates everything, including evolution and ourselves. Our next episode concerns a visionary who descended to the underworld to meet this intelligence and eventually locate it within the self. Carl Gustav Jung, you're invited to read Memories, Dreams, Reflections in preparation for this.